<laughs> Is anybody having more fun than Leo? <laughs> you know, uh, Linda identified herself as an alcoholic, and uh, I met her husband, Tom, also, and I'm not going to break his anonymity by telling you which program that he belongs to, but I'll give you a hint or two. Uh, he was telling me that uh, he had three cases of beer left over from an office party, and he took them home and put them in his storage shed. <laughs> and every once in a while, he would think, you know, I think I might have a beer. And I went, pardon? <laughs> and sometimes he forgot. And I treat people like Tom with a great deal of suspicion, so I watched him over the course of the weekend, and when he would take a bottle of water, he would go, oh, that tastes good. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, you know, I don't know about this guy. <laughs> My name is Tom Robson, and I am an alcoholic, you guy. <laughs> <laughs> And there's just one or one one housekeeping thing that I'd really like to do. Uh, is there any members of Al-Anon in the room tonight? If you, would you put up your hands if you're here? But, you know, thank you so much for being here tonight. I uh, I, I just love Al-Anon. Uh, if you knew what my house was like, and uh, you knew what had happened to my family, you would understand this. I went to a meeting one time, and uh, the uh, chairperson of the meeting took it upon himself to tell every joke about Al-Anon that he could possibly tell. Uh, you, you've, you've all heard them, you know, the, uh, the Church of Perpetual Revenge and this sort of stuff. Unfortunately for that man, I, I wasn't in the mood for them because the night before, my wife had answered the phone and I watched her and very, very quietly she, she said, but he'll never have to know. You don't have to go to a meeting. I, I promise you, you really do not have to go to a meeting. Uh, no, I can meet you in a restaurant. I, it, it's all right. It, it's, per, it's safe. And she got off the phone, and the tears came out of her eyes, and she said, Tom, I can't reach her. I can't, I can't get to her. She's absolutely terrified of her husband. We live in a little town of Spruce Grove, and the next day, this man beat his wife so bad that she was in the hospital. She then He then took the gasoline and torched their trailer. There was two children in it. He then went to the railroad track and parked his car on it and committed suicide. And that's alcoholism at its worst. And to you members of Al-Anon, if you can find humor in your program, God, you deserve to find it somewhere. But it is not the priority of AA or their business to poke fun at you at any time. Thank you for being here. One of the things that I have done in Alcoholics Anonymous is I have traveled a great deal, and I, I love going across the country, and, and, I, and I love noticing the differences in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, one of the big differences that I noticed tonight is that was the shortest moment of silence that I have ever experienced in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Winnipeg, you have the championship. It was a moment of silence. God grant me the serenity. Ah, I was just getting into my meditation, figuring out why am I here? And, and uh, you know, if you go into California, uh, they they like to chant. They they go uh, 
at the end of the meeting, they go, and keep coming back, it works, if you work it, so work it, and, they, and it just goes on forever, you know. They just don't want to leave the meeting. Uh, if you go to Florida, when they close the meeting, they say the Lord's Prayer like they really mean it. You know, it's our Father, who art in heaven, and it's just right down. In Spruce Grove, it's sort of a race, our Father art in heaven, and, and they just go, uh, and uh it's 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 fun. Uh, another thing in the states, they never stand when uh, when they say the Serenity Prayer. Everybody just stays seated. And so when you go in there as a Canadian, you go, "We'll now open the meeting with the Serenity." Bonk. What are you people doing in the city? Yeah, you know, so. But uh, it, it, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, I was uh, I was in Wyoming, and uh, we were at the ski lodge, and uh, I went to the Silver Dollar Saloon, and uh, oh man, I was sober about five or six years, and. What a great looking saloon, I'll tell you. I had to go in and investigate this place. And it had stuffed animals on the walls and it and it had a railroad track running around the top of it. And it had saddles for, for bar stools and I hawked into the saddle and I and and it had about a fifty foot oak bar and I thought, God, this is my place, you know. And the bartender came up and said, Could I get you a drink? And I said, You have no idea. And I got out of there and I went to a meeting and uh, and during the meeting, you know, when, when they read out of the big book how it works, it, it got to the, to the part where it said, many of us exclaimed, and the whole group stood up and said, what an order! I can't go through with it! And I'm, wow! You know, and I thought, hey, need a participation meeting. So I went back there that night. And uh, they 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 got to that part, and and I just jumped up with the rest of them. I said, "What an order! I can't go through with it." Uh, the next day at noon hour, I thought I was a little bit faster to my feet than those other guys. I, you know, I was sort of leading the parade, and I thought that was great fun. So I went to Eugene, Oregon, for their summer fest, and uh, geez, I'm just sitting there, man. I can hardly wait. <laughs> So they get to that part, and I leapt to my feet and hollered, What an order! I can't go through with it! And this poor old guy in front of me damn near had a heart attack. And his friend said, Sit down, you fool! <laughs> Be very careful in the States. They trick Canadians. <laughs> they don't always do that, you know. But but it's just fun being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I uh, I grew up in Edmonton, and I really like to think that uh, that I grew up in the best of times. Uh, there, there was teen dances, and, and we'd go out and we'd have these live bands, and it didn't cost you a fortune. There was no such thing as an impaired driver. Uh, there was lots of, uh, of illegal possession tickets. They were twenty-seven fifty. We got one of those on a regular basis. But, it, but we, we went out to these dances, and we, and we met with girls. And if you got into a scrap, uh, you weren't going to get killed. Nobody was going to knife you. As a matter of fact, it was quite decent. If you hit the ground, the guy said, "Stay there, and I won't hit you again." Okay. <laughs> and. Uh, <clears throat> It was all right. Uh, if you if you happen to get, huh, I don't know why I say this because it never happened. But if you got lucky, you didn't die of AIDS, you know. But uh, but and it was just fun. And and this is what this is the era that I grew up in. It was just a lot of fun. I I played football. Uh, my my dad went went off to war, and uh, I never met him, and he never met me for three years or three and a half years until he came back. And uh, I took one look at him, he took one look at me, and we thought, geez, I can live without you, you know. And uh, and we never did really get along. And uh, I don't know why, uh, truthfully. I, but he was one of these walking wounded. Uh, he never, he just didn't seem to recover from from the war. And uh, 
when I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, it was really spring in the head. He said, uh, I'm really proud of you, son, uh, to, to, to join Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought I might have been an alcoholic at one time. I, really? Uh, wow. Uh, what made you think you weren't? <laughs> well, <laughs> he said, well, he said, I found if I just stuck with beer, I was okay. And I said, funny, uh, why didn't you just stick with beer in all the years that I'd known you, Dad? You've, I've never seen you drink much beer. You were always into the whiskey. And he got the most confused look on his face, like, what are you talking about? And I just let it go, and I said, well, good for you, Dad. I, I'm glad that you're not an alcoholic and you're supporting me. But but it, it was just one of those things, and uh, and we came to terms with it later. My I was the youngest brother of uh, of three older sisters and two older brothers, and and we got along great. I, I really don't ever remember having a fight with any of my sisters or any of my brothers. Uh, my older brother was my hero. He used to uh, take me hunting. Not that I shot anything, but I retrieved a lot. Yeah. Uh, there was lots of slews, and uh, I was a good swimmer, and he couldn't afford a dog, and so. And he'd say, come on, Tom, we're going hunting. Whoa, right away. <laughs> I was just like a dog. I was so excited. Uh, uh, he, he occasionally would uh, would let me drive his car, and uh, my brother Bill and I, he's a couple of years older, and uh, we were we were good friends. Uh, Bill was my bootlegger, so I got along really good with Bill. And, I, and it was just it was just a good time. Uh, when I was about 19 years old, I went to a uh, to a dance, and uh, this band played in the mood, uh, like in a foxtrot polka, whatever. They were awful. Uh, and I took this friend of mine in, and uh, for some reason, Gary got in the line to eat first, and uh, he was pretty drunk, and he fell across the food, and the table went boom, and it was gone. It was all over the floor, I and I thought, uh, boy, this is not going to be fun, and it wasn't. Uh, they thought that he should leave immediately, and uh, I picked him up and said, come on, let's get out of here. And as we were going out, if the people would come near, Gary would reach out and poke him, and uh, the police arrived. And took Gary away. And uh, at midnight, like uh, I met my wife, uh, or my future wife to be uh, at that time, and uh, we were standing in the middle of the dance floor, and we were having a New Year's Eve kiss. And I thought I should take this girl out again. Uh, this would be a good idea. So I would phone her, and uh, I was working out of town. I was up in the Yukon and in the territories and this sort of stuff. And uh, it was probably a couple of years later, a year and a half later, I met her at a party, and. I started talking to her, and I took my girlfriend home, zipped back to the party, took, took Mary home, and uh, the next day I uh, I said, would you like to go out for lunch? And she said yes, so I took her out for lunch, and then I went over and I seen a friend of mine, and I said, you know, I'm going to marry that girl. And he looked at me and said, I beg your pardon? And I said, I'm going to marry her. I That's the woman. That's the woman for me. And and I carried on my way, and we never really seen each other again for another few months, and, and we got together again, and... Uh, that was the girl, and like if some of you are here on this April, we'll be married 40 years, and it's been been an experience for her. <laughs> uh, it's been wonderful. We, I was coaching football at that time, and uh, she uh, gave birth to our son, and uh, I thought, oh man, I can hardly wait to meet this little guy. It's just going to be tremendous, man. I just, oh, I was so excited, and and that was at the time when. Husbands were hardly allowed in the hospital, never mind in the case ward. I mean, you just were not part of the birthing at all. And uh, what you did is you went up and you held the name in front of the nursery window, and the nurse walked over and looked around and picked up a kid. It could have been any kid. I don't know. You know <laughs> brought it to the window and went, you know, 
okay, I guess it's mine. He says it's mine. I don't know. But there was no feeling. There, there was no feeling of, of, of any type of love or anything. It was just some kid. You know, who knew? Uh, so I, I, seven days later, I picked my wife up with this kid and went to the football field. Uh, my team was practicing and, uh, so I carried the kid out and I showed him to my team and they thought he was pretty good. As a matter of fact, they said, uh, we should keep him on the end of the bench for our mascot coaching. I said, what a hell of a good idea. And Mary being the stick in the mud, you'll find out later what a stick in the mud. She never thought that that was a good idea at all. And I, I just couldn't understand it. So anyways, we went home with this kid and, uh, we moved up to Grand Prairie and, and a couple of years later, uh, Mary gave birth to, to a little girl and, uh, that was Colleen Amy and, uh, Mary tells me she was jaunted. She was yellow. But you know, I really don't remember that. I, all I remember is this little tiny little girl and God, she was beautiful. And I was in heaven. I mean, here I was. I, I had a good job. Uh, I was working in the community. I, I had a wife that I was in love with. I, I had a son and I had a daughter. And, and it just doesn't get any better than that. And the reason why I, I tell you that is because sometimes I, I hear alcoholics say, well, I, I just, couldn't get used to the responsibility. I just wasn't ready. Well, I was. I, I loved being a father. I loved being a husband. Uh, about the drinking, it just, at that time, it was just sociably acceptable to drink. It, it wasn't, you know, it was okay. Uh, I, I would go on a curling bonds field. Well, I would go on a bonds field and I would just drink my face off. Everybody did. And it was okay because that's what you did when you were bonds fielding. You've all heard of the Grand National Drunk of the Grey Cup. A friend of mine, well, you'd get on the train and you'd just stay drunk until you got to Vancouver and you'd get off the train and you'd just stay drunk the whole weekend and then you'd get back on the train and come home and that's that was going Grey Cupping. Uh, I asked Dick, I said, did you see the riot in Vancouver? He said, what riot? Hell, he was 20 feet above it. He'd never seen it. He didn't know it was on. He had no idea. He had some explaining to do. But... That's, that's what it was like. It was just okay to drink. Being as my dad and I really didn't talk a lot, I sort of took his lead in the fact that you were the man of the house and uh, therefore you were allowed to drink. And uh, it was okay to drink as long as you phoned home in good time. And so I would do that. And uh, it was my right as the man of the house. I was the breadwinner. And, you know, it, it, when I look back on it now, it was just stupid. Uh, we, we, we were up in Grand Prairie and, uh, and my wife was there with the two kids and I was working and I was part of the community. I was coaching. I was doing this. I was doing that. And, uh, then I got a different job with, uh, with AGT at that time and I started traveling around the province of Alberta and drinking just got completely out of control. Uh, here we were out on the, out on the road living in motels. Absolutely no control whatsoever. We were working lots of hours. We were on expenses. And the whole crew that I worked with just loved to drink. And we just drank. And we just kept on drinking. And, and I would come home and uh, Mary would say, how, how was your time on the road, Tom? And I'd say, it was pretty good. I'm pretty tired, though. And she'd say, well, maybe we could go out for supper and maybe take a drive somewhere. And, and I would say, geez, hon, you know, I've really been driving for uh, the last week and a half or two weeks. And and I've pretty well been eating in restaurants all of that time. So I really don't want to go out for a drive and, a, and uh, to eat supper out. And she said, well, okay. And, you know, she had been sitting in the house by herself for a couple of weeks. And I was recovering from a hangover. But she didn't know that. 
Now, it was just about at that time that we started to use alcohol. Now, I don't know exactly what the use of alcohol really is, but what happened to us is Mary discovered that it was a, it was a magic elixir for me. I would come home and she would have gone to the liquor store and, uh, she would have a bottle of whiskey sitting on the, on the table and I'd walk in and, uh, she would say, what do you say we go out for supper and a drive? And I'd say, geez, Mary, I really, I'm, I'm pretty tired. She, would you like a drink? Well, yes, I would, as a matter of fact. And so she'd pour this drink and I'd take this drink and, uh, we'd have a drink or two and she'd say, why don't we go out for supper and a drive? Why didn't you mention this before? What a great idea. Let's get out of here. And it was just that quick. It was just mood altering. Just It was immediate. And the first time she did it, I think she looked at me and went, I've just found the secret to this whole relationship. Give him a couple of drinks and he'll just do anything. You know. And, and I would. And there was times when I would come home and we would put the bottle out and we would communicate. Uh, we would talk over our problems, and as it got to the end of the bottle, uh, I was really communicating. I was just downright communicating, and it was just crazy. But you know, we we were making money, so I didn't really see it as a problem at that time. My wife was running a, a teen club in the community, and and if you've ever ever seen somebody that that can work with kids, that's the that's the woman, and. This little teen club went from about seven members to about 70. And just enormously successful. And they had a lot of fun, did a lot of different things. And uh, she was getting uh, some recognition uh, at, at, a, at a banquet that night. So I was at home and, and uh, we wanted to go to the banquet. So away we went. And uh, it was just boring. Uh, to, to put it mildly, It was I didn't belong there at all. And uh, so after she got the award, I said, uh, why don't we go home? And she said, I beg your pardon? I said, well, let's get out of here. It, this really isn't for me. This is kind of boring. She said, uh, well, no, Tom, I, I'd really like to stay for the Nats. And I said, well, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm on my way home anyways. And she said, yeah, go ahead. So I got home, and I reached above the uh, the fridge into the cabinet where the liquor was, and I pulled down the, the bottle, and I got into the bottle, and I was able to start to drink like I wanted to drink. Not like those people were drinking. I, I, I could pour that, that drink and, 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 and I could take it and, and I could just feel it. And, and I needed that. And, uh, Mary came home later that night and, uh, I'd gotten really into the bottle and I was pissed, man. And she walked in and, and she took one look at me and she said, how's it going? And I said, none of your goddamn business. And, uh, violence entered our home for the first time. And, uh, I looked at her and, and I said, you know, I, if I were you, I wouldn't be really that proud. And I just grabbed her by the arm and I, and I just, poof, and I threw her down that hallway and, and I just, God, it was just, it was just a mess. And she woke up in the morning and, and I looked over at my wife and she had bruises down her neck and down her arms and, and our son was crying and, and he was saying, Mommy, what happened last night? Did Daddy hurt you? And Mary said, No, no, Scotty, nothing happened. Nothing happened. You must have been dreaming. And uh, I knew I couldn't live in that community any longer. I, I knew I had to take a geographic, and we moved out to Spruce Grove. And we became part of the community out there. And uh, I I did some things to, to, to try to heal what I had done to Mary. But, you know, you just don't heal that type of thing. But finally, we were we were able to get over it. And, and when I moved to Spruce Grove, when we moved to Spruce Grove, 
there was a hotel there. It was called the Cossack Inn, and, and it really wasn't like like a beer parlor. It was more like a clubhouse. I mean, this is where I belonged. Uh, I'd walk in there, and the barmaid would go, Hi, Tom, how's it going? And I'd say, Hi, Ruth, how are you today? And she'd say, The usual, Tom? And I'd say, Yeah, you betcha. And I think, God, I've arrived. You know, even the barmaids know what I want. When you were in there as much as I was, remembering that he drinks two beers, not a big deal as I look back on it. You know. But there was a group of people that, that I felt really comfortable with. There was Roy and Isabel. And, and they had a couple of kids. And, and we would be in there on a Saturday afternoon and we'd be drinking and, and a phone call would come and one of their kids had stuck his hand in a, in a, in a gas lawnmower and off goes his fingers. And we were, and we'd say, what would a 10 year old kid ever stick his fingers in a lawnmower for? Gee, what a stupid kid. It never once occurred to us to say, what are a group of adults doing in a bar drinking that is allowing a 10-year-old kid to run a power lawnmower? Never occurred to us to look at it that way. A little while later, we're sitting in there, and uh, another couple, their, their son got his foot caught in the track of a skidoo and lost half of his foot. And why would a kid stick his foot in a skidoo? Could you imagine Never once thinking, what is a kid doing on a skidoo like that in the first place? Why the parents are in there? And it was just seemed to be that way all the time. Something nasty was happening. Something just wasn't normal with us. And 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 this is what was happening. Now these were my peer group. Out of that peer group, Roy and Isabel, they both committed suicide. They're dead. Big Bob Fiddler, he was beaten to death on the strip. Uh, Petey. Big Ukrainian guy. He got in a horrible car accident, and his brain is mush, just mush. And Fur and his wife just carried on drinking. And she, I seen her recently, and she's the prettiest shade of orange you have ever seen in your life. You know, her kidneys are failing, her liver is failing, and she still thinks she's winning. Are you still going to that A and A, Tom? I'm like, yeah, I am, as a matter of fact. You know. And I walked into that bar years later, and they said, where have you been the last couple of weeks? Haven't seen you. I haven't been in that bar in years, you know. And so it just really goes to show you how much they really do miss you. But I I started, I I was watching my son, and he was just really a, a good hockey player. And I was watching him perform on the ice, and I didn't like the way he was being coached. And so I thought, I'm going to coach this kid. I'm going to learn. I never played hockey, but I figured I can do a better job than that. So I started to coach him in hockey, and uh, these are 10-year-olds. you got, you got to understand, these aren't big kids or anything. These are little wee guys. And we got a call from San Jose, California one time, and this hockey team says, we'd like to bring our team up to Spruce Grove and play hockey up there. We said, bring them up, bring them up, love to host you. So up comes this whole group of Americans, and we're in this little hick town of 7,000 people, we rent a school bus, and we start touring the teams all around northern Alberta. Well, if you know northern Alberta, there's Callahoo. There's nothing at Callahoo but an outhouse and an arena. And the Americans loved it. They're taking pictures of each other. And, and they're just, they're, they're, you know, they're from a city of three million, and they're in the middle of nowhere. And we, and we went up to Westlock, and uh, they have the Westlock San Gudo marching band. And they bring them out and they play the Star Spangled Banner. It was the most fantastic thing. It was 13 drums, two trumpets. It was the noisiest thing you... And I'm going, oh, God, no. 
And the Americans have got tears running. They said, that was the most beautiful thing. And they're just, and, and we're, we, we're everywhere we go, they're just treated like million bucks and, and they're getting gifts and, oh man, it's fantastic. And the only comment of the Americans was, God, you Canadians can really drink, can't you? <laughs> yeah, you were in with a good crowd. So the following year, they phone up and they said, why don't you bring your team down to San Jose? And I said, okay, we're going to do that. So I chartered a 737. And away we went. And Mary said, how in the hell are you going to pay for a 737? And I said, not a problem. We are going to get organized and we are going to raise money. We're going to have garage sales. <laughs> I have no idea to this day how we raised that money. But on December the 23rd, and we're on our way to San Jose on December the 26th, and I get a call from Mark at the travel agent, and he said, you ain't going anywhere, Tom. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you don't have a travel permit to cross the international border. And I said, why not? He said, DOT is not going to issue it. There's been a jam up. And they're not going to issue it. And you can just forget it. You're not getting that permit. There is no chance on God's green earth. And I said, I'll get it. He said, no, you won't. I phoned Prime Minister Joe Clark. <laughs> Let me tell you, he was our MLA. And I had that travel permit in 45 minutes. And uh, Mark said, you can't do that. I said, yeah, right. You've never dealt this way before. And so we got down to San Jose and we're just playing hockey like crazy. And the kids are saying, this would be a great place in the winter, hey, when it snows. They had never been down in a place that's got perpetual sunshine before. And it, we just had a wonderful time. And uh, I forget what brewery. Anyway, we met some guy, and he said, we'd like to host a candle party down there. We said, okay, well, this would be a good idea. He said, our brewery will foot the expense. He never offered that again. It just, <laughs> it was just the most amazing thing. <laughs> and... We, I just drank, and, and uh, I became a, a really good hockey coach. I, I worked my way up into uh, into the double A's, and I, uh, I won a provincial championship, and uh, we traveled, and, uh, and we just had, had good, good hockey teams, and it was just wonderful. The, the only problem with it was is, is uh, every once in a while, Mary would say, please don't drink around the kids, Tom. You're a good coach. You don't need to drink, and I'd go, oh, come on, get off my case. And, uh, you know, you can't work with kids and drink. And so I, it came down that I had a choice. Tom, you can keep coaching and quit drinking, or you can quit coaching and keep drinking. There was no contest. Uh, I wasn't going to be coaching anymore. I, I had chosen to keep drinking. Uh, Mary, at this time, had decided that perhaps if she couldn't beat me, what she could do was join me. So what happened was is I would pick her up from work, and I would say, uh, should we get some uh, liquor for the weekend? And she'd say, yeah, why don't we do that? And I'd say, what would you like, hon? And she'd say, well, maybe get a case of beer and uh, get whatever you want. I had already been to the liquor store and had gotten what I wanted. This was just extra. And uh, I never hid my liquor. It was in the trunk behind the spare tire for anybody to, <laughs> to, to see. And we would go out to Alberta Beach, and this is where the cabin was. And I would start the barbecue. And I would get the steaks all ready to go. And, and to this day, I have no idea why I did that. Because I, to my knowledge, those steaks never once hit the barbecue. Because you always had to wait until the briquettes were just right, you know. And 
by the time they were just right, I was just right, I was gone. I was into the booze, and I was out socializing. And uh, Mary would try to track me down, and I was always about three minutes ahead of her. I just He just left, you know, and uh, and I was just a motoring man. And I would show up back at home about, oh, 8.30 at night, and I like to say that I went to bed early so I could get up early in the morning to go fishing. Really, what I did was I passed out under the veranda, and I'd wake up about 5 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I had to go to the bathroom, and and I would mix myself a vodka and five alive, and I would walk out towards the outhouse, and I, I'd, I'd take a drink, and I'd go, oh, and I'd just throw up. And I'd walk a few feet further, and I'd take another drink, and I would just throw up some more. And I'd take another drink, and and... It would go down, and you could just feel it. You just go down into your legs, and uh, and boom, and up. Uh. And I think to myself, Tom, you have got to quit smoking. There, it's just killing you. You know, <laughs> it was just never the booze. It was just never the booze. And and it was TGIF day, and I'd pick Mary up, and and we, and, and the poor kids, they had no idea what was going on. And finally, Mary just gave up. She she just couldn't take it. What she didn't know, and and she'd say to me, Tom. Let's start together. That way we'll we'll progress together. Well, I would take one drink, and as it says in the big book, I was rocketed into the fourth dimension. And she just would have a drink. She she didn't understand where that drink was taking me. You know, it was I just I just poof I was gone. And finally, I would come home at night, and I'd say, uh, "Do you want to go out for a drink?" And she'd say, "You've already been drinking. There's just no way, Tom. I I just can't go out with you. You're just..." You're so far ahead of me. And I'd say, yeah, geez, you're just, you know, maybe if you'd just do a few things with me, I wouldn't have to drink like this, you know. And, and I would go downstairs and into the family room and, I, and I'd put on the music, you know, and, and I loved the big band music, you know. And I'd just be, and I, and I, you know, you get to that one part that you just love, you know. And I'd just play it over and over and over. And Mary would come down and, God, she'd be mean. Oh, she'd just take that record and just rip it in half and just, if you play that one more time, I'll just. And I'd say, geez, a little picky. Ooh, man, you're scary, Mary. So I'd put on Sing Along with Slim Whitman. and, (laughs) And we had this dog and. Every time Slim came on, the dog would go, ha, ha, sing song, ha, ha, ha. And I'd be, ooh, and the dog, ooh, and a, ooh, and the dog sounded so good. And he just would yodel, and I would be yodeling, and Mary would turn that off. And so I'd put the earphones on. And I guess with the earphones on, it, it's even worse. And God, Alanons are mean. You know, she wasn't a member of Alan. But she would come down and I'd be laying on the floor and ooh, and she'd crank that stereo up and, and the earphones would just explode off my head. And I just thought, God, that's mean. My ears would ring for a week and it was just awful. And I thought, God, I just don't understand how she's so mean. And, you know, that was just stuff. Hey, that was just sort of stuff that was happening. But what wasn't happening was uh, the bills weren't getting paid. What wasn't happening was I was charging things on Visa and I wasn't paying the bills. I mean, I would have if I could have paid it all off, but I didn't want them to think I was broke. So, yeah, I just 
didn't pay anything, you know. And, and uh, Visa was so impressed with me being that far over the limit, they'd never seen anybody that far over the limit before. And uh, things weren't getting done in the house. It was just, you know, sort of falling down around our ears. It was just deteriorating. And Mary said, geez, you know, Tom, really, your drinking has just taken us to ruin. And I said, well, do you think I'm an alcoholic? She says, well, I don't know. Maybe you are. I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll quit drinking. So I did. I quit in October. And I quit all of October. I quit all of November. I quit all of December. Made it through Christmas. Made it through New Year's. We went to a party in January. And I wasn't drinking. And we got into the party. We were there about 10 minutes. And I said, uh, let's get the hell out of here. She said, I beg your pardon? I said, let's get out of here. She said, why? And I said, well, this is really boring. She said, well, I'll tell you, Tom, what's really happening. Do you want to know? And I said, yeah, Mary, why don't you tell me what's really happening? She said, it's boring because you're a boring person. And I said, I beg your pardon? She said, yeah, Tom, you're boring. You've quit drinking. Congratulations, you've quit drinking. What else have you done? Name me one other thing that you've done that you've, that you've, that, that, that you've quit for. Nothing has changed. You're worse now. For God's sakes, why don't you go back drinking? I knew she wanted to win the bet, so I wasn't going to drink. There is no way was I going to drink. So I went right through till March, and we were in Calgary, and our hotel wasn't ready at the Palace in our hotel. And this friend of mine came up, and he said, Tom, why don't we go for a drink? And I said, you betcha. And we walked over to the lounge, and I had a rye and coke, and it was, bam. Oh, wow. I never knew that a drink felt that good. Man, it just, my next drink was a double Ryan Coke. The next thing I knew, I was at a liquor store, bought a 26. Next thing I knew, I had hung some guy off a chandelier at the convention center. Next thing I knew, there was $800 worth of damage done to my car. The police were involved. Mary was mad, and the situation was normal. Man, I knew how to handle that stuff. But I also knew that I could never, ever, ever quit drinking again. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt it was just too hard. It just wasn't possible. It was too hard to quit. And I and I just thought, I'm gonna die a drunk. That's all that there is to it. So I started to I started to drink like I wanted to. And I was completely out of control. We were out at the cottage one night and Mary looked at me and said, Tom, if you'll go to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'll go to Al Anon. And I said, well, lady, I suggest you go to Al-Anon because you're just damn crazy if you think I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And she just started to cry. And I just said, you've got to be kidding me. What happened in July of that year, I was on holidays, and Mary said, are you going to stay drunk the entire time that you're on holidays? And I said, you know, until you mentioned it, I've never given it any thought. What a great idea. And I, su- I succeeded beyond her wildest imagination, I'll tell you. I got an impaired driving charge. Went to the bank, took out some money, went to the court. The Mountie never showed up. Whew. Case dismissed. Oh, well. Well, my wife said, beat this, beat the impaired driving charge. She said, you son of a bitch. And I was kind of surprised because I thought that she would be really happy that I didn't lose my driver's license. But actually, she was hoping that I would have because she thought maybe that would be the thing that would get my attention. Now, you would think a normal person would put that money back in the bank. Nah, straight to the lounge. You know, that was it. Swore I'd never drive again. Drunk. So what I did, I found out that if you don't drive when you're drinking, you don't go anywhere when you're an alcoholic like I was. So what I did is I learned how to drive sober. I learned how to act sober. 
Uh, you know how sometimes you'll, 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 you'll stumble? Uh, I was coming home one night and I fell into a hedge and I thought, well, that's interesting. So I, I learned how to walk very methodically, you know, very slowly, put one foot in front of the other. Don't waver. Don't want anybody to think you've been drinking. So I thought, well, okay, I got this licked. And then one, uh, the word started to slur and I thought, oh, wow. What I'll do is I will really concentrate and I'll really think of what I have to say. So this way, uh, people won't know that I've been drinking. So I would think of what I had to say, keep my conversation to a minimum, but precisely enunciate each word. And I learned how to talk when I was drunk. I learned how to talk drunk, sober. And, and it just was crazy. So I'm, I'm, I'm now a functioning alcoholic is, is what I call myself. The only problem with this was things were happening that I, that I couldn't understand. I, I would be lying in bed and the sweat would just be would just be pouring off of me, and the, the sheets would be soaking wet. And, and Mary'd say, "Tom, what is the matter with you? Why are you sweating like that?" And I'd say, "God, I don't know, honey. I thought it was healthy to sweat." She said, "Not when you're sleeping, you know." And, and, and I'd be laying in bed and I'd go, wham, and, I, and I'd get a spasm. And I found out what was happening is I was going into alcoholic seizures. But because I didn't have any scar tissue on my brain, it was just going into my body and coming out as a spasm. Had there been scar tissue on my brain, I would have went into a grand mal seizure because it would have hit the scar and it would have whacked. Uh, if you've ever done a 12-step call where a person has gone into a an alcoholic seizure, they just go as stiff as a board, just whack. And uh, they can stay that way for 10 or 15 minutes, and then they come out of it, and you say, how was your trip? And they <laughs> and they say, what do you mean? <laughs> they don't know where they've been. And that's and I and I was doing this. Uh, one night, I, I would sit there, and I could hear this screaming going on out of my daughter's room, and I it was about 3 in the morning, and I... And I thought, my God, somebody's broken in and is, is attacking my daughter. And I leapt out of bed and I ran into her room. And my daughter was about 13 or 14 years old. And she was lying in bed. And the tears were rolling out of her eyes. And, she, ah, ah, ah. and I looked at her and I went, oh, God, what's going on? And, and I walked out of the room and I, and I put my head into the corner. And I just smashed my head into the corner. And I... Tom, what are you doing to your daughter? For God's sakes, Tom, quit drinking. Quit this. Stop this. You're killing her. And and I knew that I couldn't stop drinking. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I don't know whether anybody in this room can experience this, but I, I think you probably can. Do you remember where it was when you died? And I don't mean when you when you physically died. I mean when you were just spiritually dead inside, when you just knew that there was just absolutely no hope. You couldn't go on. There was no answers. There was nothing. It was that night when I was smashing my head into the wall because I, my poor daughter was crying so hard because she hurt so bad. And I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I just could not quit drinking anymore. And I don't know what your house was like, but I'm going to tell you something. The sounds of my alcoholic home was something like this. This is what my home sounded like. And somebody had just been hit. There was flesh against flesh and somebody was hurting. And there was a 14 or 15 year old little girl that would go into the bathtub and she would stay there for three hours at a time 
And when she would come out of that bathtub, she'd go, Daddy, please don't, please, Daddy, please don't yell at me. Please, Daddy, please don't hurt me. Daddy, I promise you, I promise you that I will clean my room tomorrow. Please, Daddy, please don't hurt me. Daddy, I will do my homework. I'm going to do my homework right now. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And there was a little boy, and he was 17 or 16 years old, and he'd say, get out of my face, you drunk. Leave me alone. And I'd say, don't you talk to your father that way. And he was 17, and he decided that he would never feel pain anymore. And you know what? When you decide that, you become a very dangerous person. And here was this very gentle, gentle little boy that all of a sudden became a street fighter that would stick his face in front of any fist that was coming his way and say, you can't hurt me. And then there was the woman who was my wife, and she would look at me and say, leave those kids alone, you son of a... Leave them alone. Go out. Kill yourself. For God's sakes, leave us alone. God! And I knew that I would be drinking again the next day. And there was no way out of it. And that's where my alcoholism took me. And one night, in a moment of sobriety, my sister phoned and said, Tom, I'd like to take you out for supper. And I said, that's a great idea. How about Tuesday, film? And she said, good. And she said, don't you dare cancel. And I said, me? Cancel? Not a chance. So that Monday, I went to the liquor store as usual, got a bottle, drank it, was so hungover. On my way into work, I'd take some beer, and for the first time, I drank some beer on my way to work. I was working at West Ebenon Mall. I ended up at Smitty's Lounge at noon hour, had a couple of beer, finished the afternoon, went over to Woody's Lounge, had a vodka, and got back and picked up my car, dropped my truck off, picked up a car, and I didn't want to go. Man, I didn't want to go. Just did not want to go out with my sister, but I had promised her. And all I could think about was, where are the liquor stores? Where's the liquor store? And my mind is just whirling. God, Tom, you got to get to a liquor store. You need a drink. And I just couldn't get to a liquor store. So I went over and I met with my sister. And she said, Tom, drink all you want. And I went, uh-oh, something's not right here. Nobody has said, Tom, drink all you want for a long time. So I just sort of sat there. And I didn't know... That was on a when uh, that was on a Tuesday night, November the twenty first, and I had a Ryan Coke, and she said, "Tom, you're dying. You know that, don't you?" And I said, "Pardon?" She said, "You're killing yourself. Your alcoholism is killing yourself, and not only is it killing you, but you're killing your family. Don't you see what you're doing to your family?" And for some unknown reason, that was the night that I chose to listen and I chose to hear what was going on. I said to her, "I said, Thelma, I have no idea what I'm going to do, but I promise you, I will do something." Our house was such a mess. It was such an alcoholic home. And I had hired a guy to come in and help me work on the bathroom. And he hadn't shown up the next day. But in the local Spruce Grove paper, there was a nat. I really never read it. i just seen it. But it said, drinking a problem, there is a solution. Alcoholics Anonymous meets Wednesday night, United Church, 8.30. I had always got to drinking a problem. I never read beyond that. I mean, it never, never affected me. So I went down and I got the paper. And I'm going to go to that AA meeting that night, boy. Finally, Bob showed up uh, to help me, and, and I'm just bouncing off the walls. I want to drink so bad. But I knew if I drank, I, I'd never I'd never make it to the meeting. So we're working, we're working, we're working. And I finally, Bob said, listen, i got to go, Tom. And I said, yeah, you go ahead, Bob. Please go. Because uh, i got to get to a meeting, too. And he said, oh, where are you going? What would Bob know about the Spruce Grove United Church on a Wednesday night at 8.30? So I said, i got to get down to United Church, Bob. 
He said, would you like a ride, Tom, because that's where I'm heading. And I just think, I just think it was God put him in my place. So I went down, down to this AA meeting, and there was a big guy there by the name of Len. And he had a big cowboy hat on, and I knew he needed a licking. You know, he just looked like the type. And, and Len welcomed me. And I have no idea what he said, but I knew he was smart. Because he had hooked up a plastic windshield washer bag on the firewall of his of his car when he was drinking. And he ran the hose down underneath the dash. And when he stepped on the tube and went like this, the whiskey went into his glass. And I thought, the man's an absolute genius. <laughs> I had wanted to do that for years. So I hung around AA. I figured the worst that can happen is I can get him to put one of those in my car. And I started to go to AA. And Bob said, would you like to go to a meeting tomorrow night, Tom? And I said, you betcha, Bob. Away we went Thursday night, going to an AA meeting. You know? And come Friday night, he said, Tom, would you like to go to an AA meeting? I said, you betcha, Bob. Saturday, he comes and said, Tom, would you like to go to an AA meeting? By this time, I'm not nearly as enthusiastic. And I said, well, okay. (laughs) So then Sunday, he said, Tom, would you like to go to an AA meeting? I said, oh, God, Bob, you know, really, I like AA. Don't get me wrong, but I'm pretty tired, Bob. And uh, he said, Tommy, Tom, did you ever drink when you were tired? Well, okay, where's the meeting, I said. And... uh, so we went to an AA meeting, and then we went to an AA meeting Monday. He was just damned. He was going to AA meetings all over the place, and we we went Tuesday, and we went Wednesday again, back to see Latin, and we and we went, and I was out every night of the week. We were going, to, and finally Bob said, "You know, Tom, you're on your own. You're going to have to uh, you're going to have to go on your own now to these AA meetings because I got to go out of town." And I said, "Well, that's okay, that's fine." So I went back over to uh, to a couple of more meetings, and uh, then we had this party at our place, and. Uh, Gee, there was people drinking, and, and uh, non-alcoholics really don't know how much liquor to buy. Did you ever notice that? They, cheap is the only word that I can describe my wife. So she had went to this liquor store, and we're having about ten people in, and she buys a couple of 26s and some beer, and I go, you know, because I've joined Alcoholics Anonymous does not mean that I'm cheap, Mary. Now, that isn't enough alcohol to do anybody any good. Now, go down to the liquor store and get some more booze, and she said... No, I think there's enough. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. There isn't enough alcohol, Mary, to do anybody any good. Get down there or just call the party off. And, oh, geez. So away she went, brought home a couple of more bottles. And we had this party. And, and we went out to the dance. And this friend of mine, he's just drunk. And he said, God, I've got to get home, Tom. And I said, I'll drive you. He said, well, you're drunk. And I said, no, I haven't had a drink for three weeks. So he said, oh, really? And I said, yeah, yeah. Come on, give me your keys. I'll take you home because I didn't want to stay there anyway. So... I took him home, and would you believe it? There wasn't one Mountie on the road. Not one. I looked all over the place for a man. I drove by the Mountie shop three times, and they wouldn't come out. Uh, and I wanted them to come out because I hadn't been sober for ages, you know, on, a, on that night. So, so I got home, and my daughter had gotten into the remainder of the booze. And she had gotten into projectile vomiting. And it was a mess. And so I go into there, and I look at her, and I get her cleaned up, get her into bed, get the walls wiped off, and, okay, this is one mess. My son is locked in his bedroom with his 15-year-old girlfriend, and I said, you get out of there. He said, no. I said, I'm going to tell you something, Scott. You get out of there right now. And he said, no. So I did the only thing that I knew how to do it. I said, you just wait till your mother gets home. Uh, I didn't know how to handle it. Just... Not, I mean, if I would have been drunk, I know how he would have gotten out of there. But sober, I had no idea what to do. So, 
So uh, Mary got home. The party moved from the Club Macombo home. You know what that's like. It moves where the booze is. And I understood that. So about 7.30 in the morning, the party breaks up. Everybody leaves. I get out of bed. And I clean this mess up. And I, and I, and I thought, God, here I tried to stay sober one day at a time. And look at the thanks I get for this. Yeah, I don't think I can do this. What I should do is I should get knee-crawling, puking drunk at them. That's what I should do. Yeah, that's a good idea, Tom. That'll show them. So I went down to find out if there was enough booze, and there was. And for some reason, I went to a uh, AA meeting, and I'm walking up and down the hallway outside this AA meeting in St. Albert, and Yui, who had 17 years in, come out and said, Get in here! What are you doing out there, anyways? So I went into the AA meeting. I, I just was scared. I... I, I, I wanted to go in, I just couldn't go in. And they asked me to speak for the first time, and, and I'm telling what went on, and, and I could hear this voice, and it was just whining and nibbling. And I thought, where is it coming from? And it was me. And it was awful. And I just had this, when I finished, it was just like, you know what, Tom, you never have to drink again. You don't have to drink at, at your wife again, or you don't have to drink at your kids. If you're going to drink, Tom, it's going to be because you choose to, not because you're mad at somebody. You're going to take control of your life. And I never knew that I'd lost that ability to decide whether I was going to have a drink or not. Well, if you've ever watched the NFL football players do their dances in the end zone, I started to do a dance in AA, man. I was just high-fiving them. And I was sober. I was stark, raven sober. I was a spiritual giant, man. And I said to Mary, you gotta hear these AA people, Mary. They are the smartest people you will ever meet. They know everything. And she said, well, what do they say? And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> but I know whatever it is. They're damn smart. I can tell you that much. She said, well, why don't you write it down? I said, I will. So I wrote it down, and I said, they said that if you don't take the first drink, you won't get drunk. And she said, God, they're geniuses, Tom. I can understand why you're impressed, you know, and, and I just think she was nasty. But you know what? I wasn't going to drink, and that's all there was to it. So we're having a Christmas party, so I invite her and her mother to the Christmas party, and I'm drinking Virgin Caesars, and her mother's saying, I'm not going out with you. You didn't make me that money. I'm not going out with you. It's okay, Mom. We'll be okay. So we go to this Christmas party, and there's all these AA guys, and, and Jimmy B., who's got a terrific story, he's up there telling this story. We're all laughing with him, because you know what it's like. You've been there, and the only cure for it is to laugh. And Mary and her mother, they're just crying. And she said, is this a men's Christian group, Tom? <laughs> My poor mother-in-law. God, I love her. And I said, no, Mom, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. I've joined AA. And she looked at me. And she just reached out and she said, oh, thank God, Tom, thank you. And I'd like to say that things went uphill from there, but they really didn't. They just they just went downhill. And uh, it wasn't my fault. I can tell you that, honestly, uh, what would happen is Mary would say, well, we're going over to my sister's place on Friday night. And I'd say, when did this come up? Well, I told you. And I'd say... <laughs> Mary, you've forgotten I don't drink anymore. <laughs> really, you haven't told me. Don't pull that shit on me anymore. Uh, I am now sober. Jeez, uh, Tom, I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, the bills are due. We don't have any money. Well, I don't know whose fault that is, Mary. I'm not drinking anymore. Yeah. 
must be you. You see, it never was me to begin with. You see, that, uh, the kids are in jail, Tom. Well, don't blame me. I'm not drinking. You know, <laughs> you say that one more time, Tom. You're going down for the count. And uh, I just thought it was her fault. That's all that there was to it. Except it didn't work any longer. It, it just didn't work. And uh, one day my daughter, who was in grade 12, she went out on a on a Thursday night. And she didn't show up back home. She went into the Mayfield Hotel. And, and we went out to the lake normally on Friday. And uh, But this night we're waiting for her. And she got home about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And she walked in through the door. And uh, she said, uh, I said to her, Colleen, where were you? And she said, actually, Dad, I don't think that's any of your business. And, uh, I was sober, but I wasn't well. And I just took my hand. And she just rolled across. And I said, don't ever pull that with me. And Mary started to cry. And she said, you know, Tom, I know you've joined Alcoholics Anonymous, and I really congratulate you, but really not too much has changed, and I don't think I can live with you anymore. And for the first time in my life, there was no fear. The marriage was dead. It was finished. It, it was gone. There was no fear. There was no love. There was no hate. It was just over. And uh, the only thing about it was, as I said to her, you know when you've said that I don't feel anymore? I, I want to tell you something, hon. I, I really do feel. I, I can, I, I can, I'm starting to come back to life. I can, I can feel laughter and I can feel pain and I can feel when I need to cry and I, and AA is, it teaching me how to feel again. So, so that doesn't work with me anymore. But if you want to move, you just tell me where you want to move to and, I, and I'll help you move. If you want me to move, that's all right, hon. I'll move and, and we'll be okay. And she decided that maybe we could uh, get together. And my prayer at that time was, God, please help me to be a husband. Please teach me how to be a husband, because I don't know how to be a husband. I don't know anything about this. Please, God, please help me to become a husband that you would have me to become. And I started to do things. I, I started to treat my wife with respect. I started to, to, to take turns around the house. We started to go out on dates again. And slowly, we started to get respect for each other back again. And we slowly started to to respect each other. And and there was a change. And what was most important was when she would talk, I would listen. And I and I don't mean I was thinking of an answer to her. I mean I would listen and I would try to hear what was important to her before I would talk back to her and say, Well that's all right to me. But I asked for the same respect back. And we learned how to fight. We learned how to fight fair. We never held it in for three weeks at a time. When something was bothering us, we talked about it then. We got it out in the open. And we didn't have to fight anymore. And and we came together as a couple. That marriage that was absolutely dead, there were choices now. And we came together as a couple again, and we fell in love again. And our kids were just insane. They were just going crazy. And my son was in the drugs so bad, and, and Mary was in such denial around him, like she said, oh, Scott's got such a green thumb, she was watering his marijuana plants, you know, and... And I said, Mary, you really got to stop this. Really, these are not healthy things that he's doing. There was not a knife in our house that the end wasn't burnt off of. And, and I'm saying, do you know what he's doing? And uh, she says, I have no idea, but it must be something. He must be hungry at night and cooking a hamburger. And I'm going, I think what he's doing is he's hot knife and hash, I'm quite truthfully. And I went in his drawer, and he had a lot of money like this. And I said, Mary, explain this. And she said, well, he is working part-time at the drugstore, you know. And I don't... Okay. <laughs> and I, I went to a meeting, and uh, on my way to the meeting, I knew that when I came home, he would have to leave my house. That's all that there was to it. And when I went to the meeting that night, 
old Archie, we were talking about step 10, and Archie was about 60 years old, and we got there, and he said, if there was one thing that if I could do over, if there was just one thing in all the years that I've been sober, if I could just do it over, it would be the night that I asked my son to leave my home. And he started to cry, and I went, God's talking to you, Tom. Listen to this, man. Listen to this. And I never asked my son to leave my house that night. And I don't know whatever happened to Archie's boy, and I don't care what happened to Archie's boy, but I heard what, what God was trying to say to me. And I... I just said, Scott, you've got to do something about your drug use. And Scott, yeah, yeah, yeah. And two weeks later, we came home from a meeting, and the police were there, and the ambulances were there, and Scott had overdosed on drugs. And they got him in time, and he was okay. And I was able to take him down to uh, to ADAC, the Alberta Alcohol and Drug Abuse, and I parked in front of it, and I said, Scott, you have a choice. And he said, what's that, Dad? And I said, if you walk in that building, I'll be here when you get out of it. If you choose not to, good luck, son. Because I, I can't let you kill yourself like this. And he walked into the building. And I'd like to say that, uh, that that was the end of it for Scott, but it wasn't. He had to go through a lot of things. He, he, he continued to fight and he continued to do drugs and he ended up in jail. And we went down to the remand center one day to see him. And uh, we walked into the phone booth and Mary walked in and she said, God, Tom, I can't do this. And, she just started to cry, and uh, she said, I can't do this, and I said, there's your son, Mary. He's on the other side of the glass, and she turned around, and I'll never forget the look on my son's face as he looked through that glass at his mom and how much she had, was hurting, and when he got out of there, he just didn't have enough time. He, he, got, he got into grade 12 again, and he finished his high school, and he went to Grant McEwen College for two years, and he, and he just attacked whatever it was that he was doing. But he was still doing the alcohol, and he picked up two impaired driving charges, one one night, one the next morning. It just, it just, he just wasn't ready to quit, and he lost his license for three years. And on my sixth birthday, he came to my birthday party, and uh, and there were some young people there that I had 12 steps, and they grabbed hold of Scott, and they said, do you think you've had enough fun yet, Scott? Don't you think this is just about enough? And Scott said, I don't think I can do any more. And they took him, and they took him into the care of Alcoholics Anonymous, and my son has now been sober for 15 years. It's just an absolute miracle. And uh, just wonderful. And my daughter got into places that, that just just terrified me. And, and I didn't know what to do. And I, and I would pray to God. I'd, and I'd say, God, please help me with this. Please help me with my daughter. Please help me to be the father that you would have me to be. And there was a, a, a big guy, Big Ben Al. He was a big native native guy. God, he was a wonderful man. He was my favorite man in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Ben was going to speak at a Sunday morning breakfast meeting. And, and I never went to that meeting, but because Ben was going to speak, I went to it. And Ben stood up at the podium like this, and he's talking and talking. And he just backed away, and he and he looked at, looked out in the audience, and he said, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I want to talk to you fathers out here. He said, you know, he said that love between a father and a daughter is so special that if she doesn't get it from you fathers, if your daughter does not find that love from you, she will find it somewhere and you will not like where she finds it. He said, 15 years ago, my daughter came to my house and she knocked on the door and she handed me this little baby and she said, why don't you raise this one and see if you can do a better job of it. 
He said, I have not seen my daughter once in 15 years, but that little grandchild is the love of my life. Today she got a scholarship award, she got a citizenship award, and that love that we have is so special. So I'm going to tell you, fathers, about what to do with your daughter. He said, be there. Unjudgmental, just be there. And I went, God's talking to you, Tom. Listen to this. Listen to what's going on. And I made up my mind right then and there that if there was going to be one person in this entire world that my daughter could count on, it was going to be me. No questions asked. And she would phone me and I would drive into the city and I would get her and she would be in places that was just not great places to be. And I'd walk in there and there'd be tough guys standing there and they'd say, what are you doing here? And I'd say, I'm here to get my daughter. And they'd say, way to go, man. Which one is she? And I'd pick my daughter up and we'd go there. And my daughter and I started to fall in love again. And she knew that she could count on her dad. And that girl became the most beautiful person you've ever seen in your life. And just just as 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 an aside from this, you know, the, God showed off once again. We knew she needed something, but she wasn't going to go for help. So he got her a job at ADAC, and she had to go to Henwood for two weeks and take a course on alcoholism. Uh, I would have never thought of her do, uh, doing that. So she went to this course, and then she got started to work at the Young People's Treatment Center for ADAC. And then one day we were sitting in Hawaii, and we were sitting in a restaurant, and I'm watching her, and she's got this stupidest blue-looking drink that you've ever seen. I think it's called a Blue Hawaiian or something. And she's kind of snipey. And she takes a drink and the sun came out. And the rainbow and the birds were singing. And I went, oh, I know what alcohol does to a person. She didn't taste that drink. It just went, and I knew which programs he belonged to. But I couldn't do anything. And then one night she phoned me and she said, Dad, is it true what you say about AA? And I said, of course it is. What? I, I, I needed a safe place always in AA, so I never lied. And she said, is it true that an alcoholic is simply a person that can't guarantee their behavior once they've taken a drink? And I said, absolutely, Colleen, beyond a shadow of a doubt. She said, Dad, I was at a party last week, and I had a blackout, and I don't remember coming home, and i got to go out to a party tomorrow night, and I don't want to go because I don't know what's going to happen if I drink again. And I said, oh, Colleen, I know where to take you. So I took her and took her over to the care of the world-famous Jasper Place group that meets on Tuesday nights. And you know what? My daughter hasn't had to drink in nine years. It's just amazing. <laughs> and we truly are, we truly are blessed in our home. We have two, two wonderful kids. We have four great grandchildren. One came in through the marriage with Colleen. He's 17 now. He's a great kid. And my grandson, Zach, he's nine now. And we've done a lot of things in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we, we, Mary and I used to run uh, retreats together. I see that the speaker has a retreat over here from Sister B called the Promises Retreat. We were the ones that started that retreat with Sister B. And we watched miracles happen at that retreat. And, and it's all been given back to us. It's just, it's just been wonderful, the, the things that we've done. But the most precious thing that I've ever done in my life my daughter came over one day and she said, guess what, Dad? And I said, what's that, hon? She said, I'm pregnant. And I went, what? She said, I'm pregnant. And I started to cry. I I was just so happy. And and I said, I want you to do me a favor, Colleen. And she said, what's that, Dad? And I said, can I touch your belly? She said, well, sure. And I said, can I talk to it? She said, sure. So what I'd do is I'd put my hand in her belly and I'd say, hey there, and you, you in there. I don't know who you are yet, but I know we're going to be friends. 
We're, we're going to be the best of friends. And I, and I'd touch it. And then after it grew and I could feel this kicking around and I'd say, hi there, this is your grandpa speaking. And I know we don't know each other yet, but we're going to know each other. And I was in the case room 10 minutes after he was born and I picked up this little guy and I looked at him and I said, hi there, I'm your grandpa. And he opened his eyes up because he knew who it was and he knew it was me. And I felt this, this absolute overpowering sensation of love that I never felt with my own kids, but there it was with, with my son and, and I, and I just held him like that. And, and I knew for the first time in my life what unconditional love was. And I thought to myself, this is what God feels like. This is what God feels when he, when he looks at me. It's unconditional. He doesn't, he doesn't want anything from me. And I just looked at this little guy and I thought, God, can you get it, can you get it any better than that? Can you, can you really get it any better than that? And sometimes, like, like, just about like right now, when you look around this room of Alcoholics Anonymous and we're all in here together and we're just loving one another. And you've heard my story and you know what I'm like and you can't come from there and you can't come from there and get here. But you know very well right that when I was at my very least lovable, you, you guys loved me back to hell. And I can just feel it all right here and I can just feel the love in this room like you've never ever felt it anywhere in your life before. And for that, God, I thank you so much. Thank you, guys.